0: Section 28 of The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Recording by Martin Geeson The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker by Tobias Smollett Section 28 To Sir Watkin Phillips, Baronet, of Jesus College, Oxford. You are in the right, dear Phillips. I don't expect regular answers to every letter. I know a college life is too circumscribed to afford materials for such quick returns of communication. For my part, I am continually shifting the scene, and surrounded with new objects some of which are striking enough. I shall therefore conclude my journal for your amusement, and though in all appearance it will not treat of very important or interesting particulars, it may prove, perhaps, not altogether uninstructive and unentertaining. The music and entertainments of Bath are over for this season and all our gay birds of passage have taken their flight to bristol well tunbridge Brighthamston, scarborough harrogate etc not a soul is seen in this place but a few broken-winded parsons waddling like so many crows along the north parade there is always a great show of the clergy at bath none of your thin puny yellow hectic figures exhausted with abstinence and hardy study labouring under the morbi eruditorum but great overgrown dignitaries and rectors with rubicund noses and gouty ankles or broad bloated faces dragging along great swag bellies the emblems of sloth and indigestion Now we are on the subject of Parsons, I must tell you a ludicrous adventure which was achieved the other day by Tom Eastgate, whom you may remember on the foundation of Queens. He had been very assiduous to pin himself upon George Prankley, who was a gentleman commoner of Christchurch, knowing the said Prankley was heir to a considerable estate, and would have the advowson of a good living— The incumbent of which was very old and infirm. He studied his passions and flattered them so effectually as to become his companion and counsellor, and at last obtained of him a promise of the presentation when the living should fall. Prankly, on his uncle's death, quitted Oxford and made his first appearance in the fashionable world at London from whence he came lately to bath where he has been exhibiting himself among the bucks and gamesters of the place eastgate followed him hither but he should not have quitted him for a moment at his first emerging into life he ought to have known he was a fantastic foolish fickle fellow who would forget his college attachments the moment they ceased appealing to his senses tom met with a cold reception from his old friend and was moreover informed that he had promised the living to another man who had a vote in the county where he proposed to offer himself a candidate at the next general election he now remembered nothing of eastgate but the freedoms he had used to take with him while tom had quietly stood his butt with an eye to the benefice and those freedoms he began to repeat in commonplace sarcasms on his person and his cloth which he uttered in the public coffee-house for the entertainment of the company but he was egregiously mistaken in giving his own wit credit for that tameness of eastgate which had been entirely owing to prudential considerations These being now removed, he retorted his repartee with interest, and found no great difficulty in turning the laugh upon the aggressor, who, losing his temper, called him names, and asked if he knew whom he talked to. After much altercation, Prankly, shaking his cane, bid him hold his tongue, otherwise he could dust his cassock for him. I have no pretensions to such a valet, said Tom. But if you should do me that office, and overheat yourself, I have here a good oaken towel at your service. Prankly was equally incensed and confounded at this reply. After a moment's pause, he took him aside towards the window, and pointing to a clump of firs on Clarkendown, asked in a whisper, if he had spirit enough to meet him there with a case of pistols at six o'clock to-morrow morning. Eastgate answered in the affirmative, and with a steady countenance assured him he would not fail to give him the rendezvous at the hour he mentioned. So saying he retired, and the challenger stayed some time in manifest agitation. In the morning, Eastgate, who knew his man and had taken his resolution, went to Prankley's lodgings and roused him by five o'clock. The squire, in all probability, cursed his punctuality in his heart, but he affected to talk big, and having prepared his artillery overnight, they crossed the water at the end of the South Parade. In their progress up the hill, Frankly often eyed the parson, in hopes of perceiving some reluctance in his countenance, but as no such marks appeared, he attempted to intimidate him by word of mouth. "'If these flints do their office,' said he, "'I'll do thy business in a few minutes.' "'I desire you will do your best,' replied the other, "'for my part I come not here to trifle. Our lives are in the hands of God, and one of us already totters on the brink of eternity. This remark seemed to make some impression upon the squire, who changed countenance, and with a faltering accent observed that it ill became a clergyman to be concerned in quarrels and bloodshed. Your insolence to me, said Eastgate, I should have bore with patience, had you not cast the most infamous reflections upon my order, the honour of which I think myself in duty bound to maintain, even at the expense of my heart's blood. And surely it can be no crime to put out of the world a profligate wretch, without any sense of principle, morality, or religion thou mayst take away my life cried prankley in great perturbation but don't go to murder my character what hast got no conscience my conscience is perfectly quiet replied the other and now sir we are upon the spot take your ground as near as you please prime your pistol and the lord of his infinite mercy have compassion upon your miserable soul. This ejaculation he pronounced in a loud, solemn tone, with his hat off and his eyes lifted up. Then drawing a large horse-pistol, he presented and put himself in a posture of action. Prankley took his distance, and endeavoured to prime but his hand shook with such violence that he found this operation impracticable. His antagonist, seeing how it was with him, offered his assistance, and advanced for that purpose, when the poor squire, exceedingly alarmed at what he had heard and seen, desired the action might be deferred till next day, as he had not settled his affairs. "'I hadn't made my will,' said he my sisters are not provided for, and I just now recollect an old promise which my conscience tells me I ought to perform. I'll first convince thee that I'm not a wretch without principle, and then thou shalt have an opportunity to take my life, which thou seem'st to thirst after so eagerly." Eastgate understood the hint, and told him that one day should break no squares adding god forbid that i should be the means of hindering you from acting the part of an honest man and a dutiful brother by virtue of this cessation they returned peaceably together frankly forthwith made out the presentation of the living and delivered it to eastgate telling him at the same time he had now settled his affairs, and was ready to attend him to the fir-grove. But Tom declared he could not think of lifting his hand against the life of so great a benefactor. He did more. When they next met at the coffee-house, he asked pardon of Mr. Prankley, if in his passion he had said anything to give him offence and the squire was so gracious as to forgive him with a cordial shake of the hand declaring that he did not like to be at variance with an old college companion next day however he left bath abruptly and then eastgate told me all these particulars not a little pleased with the effects of his own sagacity by which he has secured a living worth a hundred and sixty pounds per annum of my uncle i have nothing at present to say but that we set out to-morrow for london en famille he and the ladies with the maid and chowder in a coach i and the manservant, a horseback the particulars of our journey you shall have in my next Provided no accident happens to prevent. Yours ever, J. Melford. Bath, May 17th. End of section 28